0: You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and for the many expressions of that love to us. But most of all, we thank you for the expression of your love through Jesus, who loved us enough to die in our place. And I ask today that you would take the passage that we're studying and apply it to our lives by your Spirit. And thank you for hearing us because of Jesus and because of the Holy Spirit's interceding for us. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Ms. Thompson was a conscientious fifth grade teacher. It was her conviction that she should t- treat each child in her class equally, but a certain class of students had a certain student by the name of Teddy Stollard who was very difficult for Ms. Thompson to treat in this fashion. Teddy was unattractive physically. He was not a very bright student, and he didn't seem to care that he wasn't a bright student. It didn't take long for a groundswell of resentment to well up in her heart toward Teddy. She almost enjoyed giving him F's when report card time came around. She had access to information about his background. He was now in the fifth grade. In the first grade, he had shown some promise as a student but some trouble began to surface in his home. By the time he was in the second grade, his mother had grown seriously ill, and his grades continued to decline, as did his behavior. During his third grade year, his mother died, and the eclipse of Teddy's education continued. In the fourth grade, the teachers tried to contact his father to get some support, some understanding for why he was such a poor and rebellious student. They got no cooperation. Finally, he came to the fifth grade in Miss Thompson's class. It was Christmas time, and all the children were bringing gifts to Miss Thompson, and she was making much ado about nothing, really, over the gifts which she received. And Teddy came and handed her his gift. It was obviously wrapped by him without any adult supervision. As she began to open it, she found inside a bottle of cheap perfume and the gaudiest-looking rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing she'd ever seen. And she sensed that the other students were beginning to giggle and laugh. She promptly opened the bottle of perfume and put some on her wrist and said, wouldn't you like to smell this lovely perfume? And a transformation occurred in that class as the students came and they began to smell the perfume. And isn't this a beautiful bracelet?" she said, as she turned her wrist over, and ooze and eyes began to surface there from the class. After the day was over, Teddy came up to Miss Thompson and he said, "Miss Thompson, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother, and you look real pretty in her bracelet too. I'm glad." you liked my presence. After Teddy left the room, Miss Thompson fell on her knees and asked God to forgive her for her lack of love for this child who was so unlovely. A transformation occurred not only in Teddy because he became a very, very good student for the rest of the year, but also in her life. She was never the same. Several years passed, and if you think I'm making this story up, I'm not. It's a true story. Several years passed, she received a letter from the same Teddy Stollard, signifying that he was graduating from high school, second in his class. Four more years passed, she received another letter. Teddy was graduating from college, valedictorian, first in his class. Four more years passed, and she received another letter. This time it was signed, Theodore Stollard, M.D., Also included in that letter was news of his upcoming wedding. And he said, "Miss Thompson, since my mother is dead and my dad died recently, would you come please and sit in the place where my mother would have sat in my wedding because you're the only family I have left now. Isn't that a great story of what love can do to change people? not just the one who's being loved, but also the one who does the loving, isn't it? What a tremendous, tremendous opportunity we have as people who know God through Jesus Christ to be able to be the receptacles of that kind of love, but not merely the receptacles of that kind of love, but also the agents of that kind of love. Last week, we saw how love is ultimately necessary as we studied verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. We saw it is necessary for three reasons. First of all, without love, we turn people off and we all have the inherent need to belong. Secondly, without love, we are insignificant and we all want to be important, don't we? And thirdly, without love, our life is lived in vain. And if the truth were known, everyone here wishes to make a contribution to life. Now we come to a consideration of the characteristics of love. There's no way that I'm going to cover all the characteristics of love today. As we look today at verses 4 and 5, we're going to see the beginning of the portrait of love which the Apostle Paul paints. And Jesus himself is sitting for this portrait. You or I could insert the name Jesus in each one of the occurrences of the word love and we would be right on. You see, Jesus is the only person who can perfectly love. And that's why it's absolutely necessary for you and for me to live in that vital relationship with Jesus as a branch abides in a vine. So we too must depend on Jesus Christ to live His life, and to give His love through us. Last week we saw how this matter of love is a matter of the Spirit of God. It is a manifestation, if not the broad umbrella under which all the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit fall. This love is a new word for a new idea. John Stott's definition for love, if you will recall, is the sacrifice of self in the service of of undeserving others. I'd like to give you another definition that I found this week from Lewis Smeads. Listen carefully to it. This kind of God-given love is the liberating power to move in the direction of our neighbor without demanding any reward for loving that person, without expecting anything in return for our expression of love. The verb's which are used to paint the picture of love by the Apostle Paul in verses 4 and following are all in the present tense suggesting that this is to be a habitual state in which we as Christians find ourselves when we relate to other people. It's unfortunate that language does not really do good service sometimes in expressing what the New Testament or the Old Testament writers meant These are all verbs. There are no adjectives suggesting that this kind of love is active. This kind of love acts in a certain way or does not behave in a certain kind of fashion. Now having given these comments as introduction, let us delve quickly into an understanding of the characteristics of love. Look at verse 4. Love is patient. Actually, this would be properly interpreted love suffers long now there's not a person here who's lived long who has not suffered suffer to suffer is to choose to live indefinitely with what we hate and that is characteristic of love things which we do not want to put up with we put up with through the power, the liberating power of the love of God in our lives. For instance, you have a rebellious child. Sometimes you get tired of that rebellious child, but because God has given you that child, you love that child. And you don't accept the behavior of the child, but you love the child. Or you have a cantankerous neighbor or a mean boss. And you insert the scenario that you wish to insert at this point, but hopefully you receive the point that love suffers long. Love chooses to put up with things which it does not particularly enjoy or like. Love is able to endure. This word, which is translated patient in verse 4 of our passage of Scripture, means not to be quick to take offense or to inflict punishment once one has been offended. And it implies that the person who is patient has the power to retaliate. It's the power to repeatedly experience inconvenience in our lives and to be taken advantage of. I don't like to be taken advantage of. Do you? I really don't. But the person who loves, truly loves, is willing to undergo that kind of mistreatment For the cause of Christ and in the name of love. Without getting mad, without getting angry. The telltale definition of this word really is found in the fact that God himself is described as being this kind of love toward men. In 2 Peter 3.9, the Bible says that God is patient with us because He does not want anyone to perish, but He wants everyone to come to repentance. We might ask, why hasn't God stamped out all the rebellion in the world? If we were God and men had said things about Him, said things about us rather that they have said about Him, we would have just wiped them right out. We would, wouldn't we? We wouldn't have put up with it. But because God loves us, He's able to relate to us that way. Robert Ingersoll was to the 18th century what Madeleine Murray O'Hare is to our century. He made it his business to go from lecture hall to lecture hall to lecture hall to prove the non-existence of God. And on occasion, after he had given his, what he thought to be irrefutable arguments for the non-existence of God, he would sometimes fold his arms like this and look heavenward and say, and now I will give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I have said." Theodore Parker, who was a contemporary preacher of Ingersoll, said, and did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? You see, God has infinite long-suffering. He's infinitely patient. But God does draw a line, it seems, on his long suffering. Because in the book of Romans, we're told three times when people refused the truth of God, they exchanged it for a lie, the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and then they refused it. The Bible tells us that God gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up. Unless you leave this place today thinking that you have an unlimited number of chances to give your life to Jesus Christ, don't be fooled. It could be that God will give you up today. This may be the last chance you will ever have to give your life to Christ today. Don't try God's patience. Secretary Stanton was Secretary of War during the Civil War under President Lincoln. Prior to Lincoln's being elected President of the United States, Stanton saw Lincoln as his arch enemy. In fact, he called him that low, cunning clown. He called him the original gorilla. He said, there's no sense on going on safari to Africa to catch a gorilla. All you have to do is go to Springfield, Illinois, and there you will find one in the person of Mr. Lincoln. When Lincoln was questioned about the negative comments, snide remarks which Stanton made about him, and asked why he did not retaliate because he was the president after all, and this man served on in his cabinet Mr. Lincoln merely said, he is the best man. When Lincoln's body lay in state after having been assassinated, through a veil of tears, it's reported that Stanton looked down and said, there lies the greatest ruler the world has ever seen. Patient love won out. Patient love will always win. Now, love is something that we must exercise toward each other. And we must exercise the same kind of patient, long-suffering toward each other. Who is it that's really bugging you? Who is it that's really making life miserable for you? And you have it within your power to fire that person or to put that person in her place. Who is it? Love suffers long. But let's look at what else is characteristic of love the apostle says love is kind perhaps a good interpretation of this would be love acts kindly frederick nietzsche who was the spiritual father of adolf hitler detested christianity for the fact that christianity advocates kindness and he said that it, in its advocate advocacy of kindness toward the lame and toward lepers and toward the oppressed it sapped man of his strength. It made man weak. And isn't that the way world, the world looks at kindness? It looks at it as weakness. But certainly, love, no matter what form it takes, is powerful. A little girl prayed and she said, Dear God, please make all the bad people good and make all the good people kind. Evidently, she'd run into some good people who weren't kind. You've run into them. I've run into them. Their doctrine is right, but their attitude is wrong. Love in kindness does good to those who do it harm. In a way, it's sort of the flip side of long suffering. Because long suffering is willing to take anything from others, whereas kindness is willing to give anything to others. Kindness is generosity. If there is no evidence of generosity in my life, then there is no evidence of love in my life. And let me say that you can't just pick one of these attributes of love or two of them or three of them. It's a picture, remember? It's like the fruit of the Spirit. You can't just pick joy or peace. You have to take everything there, and that's the case here. Kindness reacts with goodness to mistreatment. The prophet Elisha and his servant were surrounded by the Arameans. They were outnumbered hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands to two. Elisha prayed to God, God, strike the Arameans blind, and that quickly they went blind. Then he came to the leader of the Arameans and he said, You must follow me, and he led them right into the citadel of the power of Israel. He took them to the capital of Samaria. And when he got there, he said, God, would you please restore their sight to them? And they did, and all of a sudden, they were the ones who were surrounded. And the king of Israel evidently was all thrilled about this. He ran up, and he said, Father, he addressed Elisha in that fashion, Father, Father, shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? The prophet said, No. Spread a banquet table for them. Give them water to drink. When your enemy is hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And the Word of God tells us in 2 Kings 6 that from that day forward, the Arameans ceased raiding Israel. Love does act kindly because God is love and God is kind. God causes the sun to shine on the good and the evil, Jesus tells us. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is indiscriminate in His kindness. And so if we are people who love, we will be indiscriminate in our kindness. But we're not kind sometimes. I'm not talking about being unkind. There's a difference between being unkind and not kind. Being not kind is sort of a neutral attitude. And we're not kind sometimes because we're afraid to risk, because it's risky being kind. We risk being misunderstood when a man smiles at a woman or holds the door for her. He runs the risk of being misunderstood as being one who's coming on to her. Or maybe when you see a stranger that you'd like to come up and greet, you're afraid to because you risk being misunderstood by that individual. Love is always kind, but kind acts aren't always loving. For instance... A rich politician, and we see a lot of this right now in our country, a rich politician poses with the poor in order to get a picture of himself with them to gain votes. Or a husband busies himself around the house doing chores, which his wife ordinarily does because he wants to point out to her how poorly she's doing her job. Sometimes kindness is tough. It's not all syrup and sweet. Sometimes it has to say no to a spoiled child. Sometimes it has to report a friend for crime or admit a loved one to a drug treatment center for her or his addiction. And let's look at the next characteristic in this cameo of love. It does not envy. Now, when do you envy somebody? I tell you what, I do most of the time when somebody's doing better than I am. That's when I envy them. Isn't that true with you? We tend to envy people who are pretty much on our level. We don't envy those who are greater or much lesser than we. We envy people who are on our level. There are two types of envy the type which says, I want what you have, I want your car, I want your wife, I want your success. In another form it's more subtle says i wish you had not gotten what i wanted i wanted to be president of the class i wanted to be first string running back on the football team i wanted that promotion that's another expression of envy love on the other hand is not displeased with others successes but rejoices with them love is glad when one is more gifted or more successful or more intelligent. Love isn't envious. And also, Paul says in verse 4, love does not boast. C.S. Lewis calls boasting the utmost evil because it indicates pride. And pride really is the grandpappy of all the sins, isn't it? It's the sin from which all other sins spring because it rivals God. What is boasting anyway? Well, this word which is translated boast in verse 4 suggests any form of activity which is designed to get applause from other people. To boast is to try to look good in other people's eyes because we want to impress them because we want them to think highly of us. This is so unlike Jesus. How many times have you read the gospel account of Jesus and been puzzled by the fact that Jesus would heal someone and then he'd say, I don't want you to tell anybody. Has that ever bothered you a little bit? I mean, I was reading that in the book of Mark in Mark 1 about how he healed the leper and I wanted to say, go tell everybody. That's what I wanted this leper to do who had been healed because I wanted people to know Jesus. But Jesus is not one who boasts, nor will we be if we are people in whom Jesus is in, indwells and whom He loves and, and through whom He wishes to care people. Now, why do we boast? It's because we have a sneaking suspicion that if other people really know who we are, they're not going to approve of it. And We've got to make ourselves look better in other people's eyes in order to assure ourselves of being admired by them. Now, most people who boast are very subtle about it. I mean, most of us don't swagger into a room and start showing off all the accomplishments of our lives. We do it in a very, very subtle way. We do it through the cars we drive or the clothes we wear. We do it through the names we drop We do it by trying to be seen with certain people whom we think are more prestigious than others. We do it by going to certain parties. We do it in any number of ways by joining clubs which we think will bring a certain amount of respectability to our lives. William Barclay says, Love is more impressed with its unworthiness than with its worthiness. Earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, the first chapter in the 31st verse, Paul says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's nothing that you and I have to boast of except Jesus Christ. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man of his strength, or the rich man of his riches, Jeremiah said. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows God. That is the only thing that you and I have any ground to stand upon when we boast. Let us not boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ and His love for us. Paul says in the last part of verse 4 that love is not proud. The noun form of this verb translated is not proud was used to describe bellows. You know what bellows are? So really what the Apostle is saying here is love is not puffed out like a pair of bellows when they're filled with air. Love does not put on airs. William Carey is arguably the founder of the modern missions movement. William Carey went to India. He gave his life translating the Bible into 34 different Indian languages and or dialects. But because of his former life in England where he was a cobbler, he was never quite accepted in the culture of the British in India. He was at a gathering of dignitaries from the British government and one such dignitary spoke to him saying, Mr. Carey, I understand that you were a shoemaker before coming to India? William Carey said, No, your lordship. I was not a shoemaker. I was a shoe repairman. You see, love does not put on airs. Love tells it like it is. Love is accepted in the beloved Jesus Christ and therefore the love doesn't have to try to impress people. Are you trying to impress people? How much of your conversation revolves around you when you're with other people? It's a good sign, if a lot of it does, that you're unloving. Because when we boast, what do we do? We're really putting other people down, aren't we? That's exactly what we do when we boast about our degrees or about our athletic accomplishments or about our conquests with the opposite sex or anything else. Love isn't proud. Now, the Corinthians were all these things, weren't they? The Corinthians were short-suffering. They weren't long-suffering. The Corinthians were unkind. The Corinthians were envious of each other. They wanted the better gifts, didn't they? The Corinthians boasted when they got the better gifts or what they thought were the better gifts. Hey, look at us. We've got them. We're more superior than you because we've got these supernatural gifts. They were all so proud. They were spiritual show-offs. There's absolutely no place in the body of Christ for spiritual show-offs. It's only place for one star, as we saw a few weeks back, and that is the person of Jesus. Now let's look at the next characteristic. Love is not rude. Love's not poorly mannered. There's a kind of Christianity which is brutally blunt. It prides itself in saying, I call a spade a spade. Let the chips fall where they may. I tell it like it is. That is not the love that is spoken of in this context. The Corinthians were rude. They ate the love feast without waiting for their poorer brethren to arrive. They all spoke in tongues at the same time. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul had to correct them and say, if you're going to speak in tongues, do it one person at a time. Love cares so much for others that it acts politely. Are you polite? You can take the most unlettered person who has the love of Jesus in his heart and place that person in high society and that person will act politely in his or her treatment of other people. My father is unlettered, has a ninth grade education, has driven a truck for 40 years, made a wonderful living for my family, has not pretended to be anything special, has really not attempted to put on airs about his educational background. But my father has the uncanny ability to fit into any place he goes. You know what the explanation for that is? It's because he has experienced God's love and he's an agent of God's love. That can be true of you. It can be true of me. We don't have to worry about what we don't have in terms of credentials. The only thing we need to concern ourselves with is are we loving people? And if so, we'll fit in in the sense that we will be polite and not rude. Then Paul says love is not self-seeking. I love the way the Revised Standard Version translates this. love does not insist on its own way. If you and I were to awake in the morning and every succeeding morning for the rest of our lives and we were to say that one word and believe it, love does not insist on its own way, there would be a cessation and ending of so much conflict in our lives. If we would trace honestly the source of the upsets in relationships in our lives, nine times out of ten I would be willing to wager They all stem from the fact that we insist on our own way. We seek our own way. But love doesn't seek its own way. Let's look, finally, at the next characteristic. It is not easily angered. Now this means it's not touchy. I may be touching a raw nerve here with some of you tonight. Today, bad temper is the vice of the virtuous. A person can be impeccable in character, but have this little glitch in his or her personality. We call it bad temper. Irritability. Does it irritate you when you find that the tube of toothpaste? is all crinkled up instead of rolled up nicely and neatly like you want it to be? Does it irritate you when you walk into the bathroom and your children's clothes are all lying on the floor and you fly off the handle, explode in vehemence all over them just like a, a volcano's erupting on them and wound their spirit rather than quietly and calmly showing them how things ought to be done? Love isn't touchy, not easily angered. Now this does not rule out the need for righteous indignation. All anger is not wrong. In fact, sometimes when anger is not present, there is something badly wrong. That which angers God should anger us, just like it angered Jesus when he cleared the temple of the money changers. There is a place Once the long-suffering of God has been exhausted, there is a time and a place for anger. That's not what the Apostle is writing about here. Some of you might say, well, I get mad, but it's over in a few moments. So is an atomic bomb after it's dropped. It's over in a few minutes. But the destruction remains. And anger is destructive if it's not righteous indignation. One more comment about righteous indignation. The person who gets mad for the right reason never gets mad because of wrong done to herself or to himself, but only when wrong is done to others. And here again, if you would test why you get mad and when you get mad, it's normally when something's been done wrong to you, not necessarily to somebody else. Well, this is rather enlightening, I hope, and for me it's been very indicting. Can you put your name every place that love's found that we've read today? Mike is patient. Mike is kind. Mike does not envy. He does not boast. He does not show arrogance. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. Jesus Christ is long-suffering. He never looked down on people. He never put people down. He had the enormous capacity, just like Miss Thompson, to accept people and to change people. And If you're here today, And you know you need to be changed by that love of Jesus Christ. You know you're a sinner. You know you've got problems. You know you're guilty. You all only have to come to Christ today. And He will love you with this kind of affirming love, give you freedom in your life you've never experienced before. Won't you do that today?